If you want to support the show, please visit our webpage, thebittersweetlife.net, and click the donation button. Additionally, if you're interested in sponsoring the program and reaching thousands of people all over the world, send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at M-A-I-L dot com. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. And this week I have the pleasure of being joined by historian Mary Beard. She's the author of the new book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. She's a professor of classics at Cambridge University and the best-selling author of The Fires of Vesuvius and the National Book Critics Circle Award-nominated Confronting the Classics. Thank you so much for coming. How long would you say you've traveled to be here for this podcast? Um, longer than I'd even like to think. <laughs> it should have been about 15 hours, but it kind of got longer. <laughs> she had terrible delays all day long, so she's going to lay down while we do this, which I will say is pretty great because you're the first person I've ever interviewed who's laying down. It's <laughs> a very kind of uh, decadent feel to it. I know, it's very nice. It kind of fits with how we tend to think of ancient Rome as being very decadent, even though that's not necessarily the reality, right? Uh, it's not necessarily the reality, but I think it's nice to pretend. Okay, so we'll just pretend. So this book, it's the history of ancient Rome. So if you haven't seen the book yet, you can imagine that it is large. And I was really in, and have been very much enjoying it. But at some point I decided I can't rush through it. Like normally I would try to read the entire book before you showed up. And so instead I decided I've just got to pick some spots. We're not talking for hundreds of years together. We'll just cover the, what we can. So I thought maybe we would talk about the difference between the rich and the poor and also just the foundation of Rome itself. And those are two giant topics anyway. Okay, so let's start with the foundational question, which is why do you think ancient Rome still matters so much to modern day people? That's the big one. (laughs) I think it's because whether we like it or not, Rome is one of the founding myths we have about ourselves in the West. And it still underlies in in very different ways the way we do things in the West, the way we think about ourselves. Now, it's not the only thing. Happily, it's not the, you know, we're not simply the heirs of Rome, thank heavens. But Rome is one thing which stands in all our histories in quite interestingly different ways. And I think that in the UK, Rome is there because the Romans were there and because our towns were founded by the Romans and our roads go the way the Romans wanted them to go. It's quite different, I think, in the US, but I think also terribly powerful in terms of what the founding fathers thought they were doing in devising a version of politics for a new country. And so it's very interesting when you meet... American students, they have a much clearer idea than British ones do about the Senate and the Capitol and all those words which really underlie American politics that don't underlie British ones. Yeah, I think we also tend to use it in the United States as a cautionary tale. It's always about the fall of Rome and let us not get too mighty for ourselves, right? But I think it is a good cautionary tale and Rome, Roman thinkers were always very keen to say that what went up 
must come down. That was a sort of cliche of Roman thought. But I think that we can get a bit too preoccupied about what went wrong with Rome <laughs> instead of thinking what went right with it. Um, you know, that it lasted for a millennium as a major world power. And in the east of the Mediterranean, it lasted a lot longer than that. And we are always a bit kind of doom-laden about it, you know. What caused the decline? And I, I think the more interesting question is what kept it going? Why did you decide to start the book with Cicero? But who is Cicero? Maybe I should ask you that first. Cicero is the one Roman we know most about. And that's why I started with him in a way. He was a famous politician, philosopher, know-all, joker, orator, who lived in the first century BC, just about the same time as Julius Caesar. We know about him because his writings became so well-known that they were copied and recopied and recopied and survived. So you can still read. You can still read what Cicero wrote in the orations he gave in the forum, but you can also read the letters that he wrote to his mates. He's, I think, the one Roman you can kind of look at eyeball to eyeball. I started with him because I think that the earliest history of Rome for me, and I hope for the people, is very interesting, but we don't really know about it. It's about conjecture, it's about myth. And I think starting a history, starting a book where you say, all right, now we're going to start with a bit we know nothing about, really, is a bit of a turn-off. So I decided to start with one moment in one year that Cicero writes about, that we know through him, where we could actually see an ancient event happening 2,000 years ago, as clearly as we can see events that happened 200 years ago. Cicero is a very is a great character because we've seen an awful lot of Roman history through his eyes. And so you've got to get to grips with him. You know, he's a prig and he's annoying uh, and he's all the other things that, you know, great politicians or above-themselves politicians are, but he's somebody that you can get a grip on, I think. That's why I started. I started so we could say, right, here we are. Here's something about Rome we know as well as we know anything at all. It's not that it's a myth, that you can actually see yourself in parts of him, basically. Yeah, and I think myths are really interesting, but I know from, you know, teaching students that when you say, right, okay, this is all dead interesting, but none of it happened, people get a bit frustrated. So I wanted to start with a bit you could say, look, okay, this happened on this day in 63 BC. And then you can go back from there and you can say... Right, okay, so think about Cicero. How did he think that the city of Rome that he lived in, how did he think it began? And was he right? And so it gives you a bit of, gives you a bit of kind of firm ground to start on. And one of the things you say about him too, you've said that when looking at Roman history, you always have to be alert to the other side of the story. And what do you mean by that? Well, Cicero is wonderful, and he's my friend in the sense that, <laughs> that, that I did my PhD thesis based on his work. So I feel very grateful to Cicero in some ways. But he's also he's a very powerful vision and also a dominating vision of how you see Roman history. And at a certain point, you have to stop and say, hey, wasn't there another way of seeing this? 
because you know, there's volumes and volumes, you know, 20 volumes of Cicero's work still survives. It really gives us a terribly vivid, a terribly lively, but also a very partial view about a time in Rome where there was huge political debate. And so it's great fun, actually, to say, OK, so this has been wonderful. We've done this. We, we thought through what Cicero is telling us about this moment. Now let's think what his enemies would have said. Because you could never know that as well, but I think part of the point of history is, is to make you a bit counter-suggestible. And you have to say, hmm, let's suppose we don't believe him. How would it look then? It's a great case study. You know, In 63, he's having a big battle against one of his great enemies. And, you know, it's good fun to say, well, how would that enemy have seen what was going on? Right, because it's so easy to think, well, he was the bad guy. Because yeah. the guy that we're reading of, of course we're on his side. We know what he thinks. And maybe Cicero was the bad guy. Yeah, it, well, exactly. I mean, it would be like kind of reading about this year's presidential campaign if all you had was the speeches of Trump. Right. It would, <laughs> it would, look, it would look different <laughs> if that's all he had. And you know, I'm not in any way suggesting, I think it would be a terrible insult to Cicero to suggest that he was quite like Trump. But that's the sort of thing. If the, you have to say, you know, politics has got more than two sides and you've always got to think about the other one. You did a really good job. I'm going to totally leap ahead here because you did a really good job, I thought, in this book of bringing people like Cicero to life. But there was another moment when you brought people to life for me in a very vivid way and it was when you were talking about the board games that people played in ancient Rome and you were specifically writing the different phrases that they wrote on the boards my favorite one the one I thought I should hang this up on my fridge and just make this my motto for life which was hunting bathing gaming laughing that's living and the other one I really loved was the board is a circus retire when you're beaten you don't know how to play which I thought were both like so telling of how these people would have harassed each other, jived with each other. It really raised the question for me, are we any more refined in our sense of humor than the ancient Romans were? Uh, no, we're not. Uh, and, and we can. I think what's fun about Rome, and it's probably the only ancient civilization where you can quite do this, is that we can both get this eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation with someone like Cicero, you know, big, major, political figure, rich, elite. But there's also quite a lot surviving where we get glimpses of what the ordinary people think. And they're sort of partly the same and partly different from Cicero. And uh, one of the things that I only discovered these quite recently is these mottos which kind of form the board for dice games of some sort. We don't know what the rules were, but we can see that these things are kind of scratched into steps in Roman forays, you know, as far away as Algeria or Spain or wherever. And they do give these marvellous mottos for living, you know, things like, you know, what makes life worth living? Well, it's sex, sex, drugs and rock and roll. We, if we had it, it would be sex, drugs and rock and roll. It's what they're saying, right, right. really. That's what bathing and hunting yeah. are. <laughs> yes. So what does that tell you as a historian? What, how does that inform when you're looking at the history of Rome, your assumptions about the people that would have been playing dice games? Well, I think you need a bit more information than that. But, yeah, <laughs> but it, and what I think is interesting about that kind of thing is it shows you a kind of sense of 
a shared popular culture. These are board games. What they are, they're not quite like the modern board game that you get out on a holiday on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving or whatever and you know, say, right, OK, we're going to play Monopoly now or whatever you play here. These are the scratched in public spaces. And so they're what you do when you're sitting in the forum, you haven't hang around, you've got nothing else to do. You sit down and there's, a, there's the board is scratched into the steps that you're sitting on. And so they're kind of taking you right into how those people idling away in a public space their kind of shared assumptions and cliches about living you know now of course they're cliches but you're just getting that that little tiny glimpse of someone saying god you know hunting bathing sex that's really that's what i like to do mate you know it's one of these tiny glimpses of popular culture in rome now it's popular culture because it's largely an illiterate culture as these board games show because they've got these slogans on them but it's it's a very semi-literate very limitedly literate culture and for that reason it's quite hard to it's hard to reach you know you can you can read 20 volumes of cicero but you can't read what the guy who was the baker down the back street wrote because he didn't write anything but if you look hard enough you can see well, you can see the cliches that made up his world, mm-hmm. or her world. And I'm afraid it's in Rome, I'm afraid it's mostly his world. We get much better access to what men thought. And that's something that you can begin to work with. You can also, in some ways, it's perhaps good to remember that the poor, the disadvantaged, the sort of average, ordinary person in the Roman Forum, um, I think they had fun. Too, I think it's it's terribly easy if you're a well-meaning liberal historian to imagine that life was just dreadful for the Roman poor. The life was dreadful, but you know they had a spark and a spirit. You know, and they thought that there were things you could enjoy about life too. Yeah, I love it because it's just so humanizing. Like you can just yeah. picture the people as if they're just your next door neighbor in that in that capacity. But how did the the wealthy actually feel about? people playing these dice games for money? Uh, The wealthy were very disapproving, of course, but the wealthy are always disapproving of what the poor do with their spare time. I mean, you you don't have to go, you know, much further than either modern culture or, you know, Victorian England or whatever to say, oh, you know, what do the poor do? They waste their, you know, they don't have much money and they waste it on drink and and et cetera, et cetera. Um, So as I think in most elite cultures, the rich tried to prevent the poor from enjoying themselves. There were loads and loads of Roman laws about gambling and board games and dice games, you know, a bit of a moral dilemma. The rich, of course, diced all the time, and it was the poor they wanted to stop dicing. Is that because they were afraid that somebody could win big and jump from one class to another, or...? They never articulated in those in those terms. They they articulated as look what goes on in taverns, you know. It's these guys and they're they're wasting their money and spending all the time, you know, dicing away till late at night, making nasty noises and getting completely drunk. One argument when you say why why is the elite always so bothered about gambling among the poor, whether it's 
2,000 years ago or now or 100 years ago. Maybe that it may be that what's really going on is that gambling disturbs the social order because if you can leap up the social hierarchy or at least the wealth hierarchy by winning just overnight and I, you know I suppose we see it today I don't know what it's like in the States but in in the UK there's a bit of that about people who win the national lottery you know that they won two million pounds there's always a terrible sad end they squandered it you know, or you know, you know, their marriage broke up. You know, the family was, you know, was completely ruined. You know, that somehow there's this uh, this kind of strange version that we now have that is that is very bad for the poor to win a lot of money. <laughs> they haven't been trained how to deal with such such power and money, right? Yeah. So you read in all kinds of newspapers, and of course, and in, in some strange way, we take it seriously uh, about the terrible things that happen to the poor who win millions. And you think, well, maybe they had a nice time actually. Um, <laughs> and it's our version of that Roman sense that it's very very bad thing for the poor to do this. It's interesting, too, with part of their, their upset with the carousing and the drinking and all that, that maybe we don't see quite as much around, at least the United States now. Is that because they were living closer to them than we do in our cities today? In some ways, in some ways an ancient city is very like ours, in some ways. You know, it has traffic problems and rubbish problems, trash problems, and, uh, and you, can, you can look at how Romans talk about ancient cities, their own cities, feel very familiar. But there are also significant differences which, which impact on that question because we are used to cities being zoned, that there are relatively rich areas, there are relatively poor areas, there are commercial areas and residential areas. And so we think that the cities as it were, distinguish their different functions. And I think what's really striking about a Roman city, at least as we see it in Rome itself, but also in Pompeii and Herculaneum, and the cities destroyed by Vesuvius, that there isn't that zoning, and the poor are living absolutely next door to the rich. So everybody's much more on top of one another. And it's quite an interesting dilemma about whether you think that's a good idea or not. I mean, you know, one way you can say, oh, this is great. These are mixed communities. And one of the best preserved slum tenements in the city of Rome is right under the main Capitoline Hill, the main civic centre, in a way that would be inconceivable to us now. And you think, oh, great, much more mixed. Then you think, would it have been nice to have been a poor shopkeeper living next door to somebody's palace. The dynamics of social interaction are changed, I think, by it. And the way people are visible to each other change. I think you get a different sense of engagement between rich and poor. It can be profitable, it can, I think, be interesting, and it can be a shared engagement but it can also have these kind of senses of people, you know, the rich and the poor snoop on each other much more. Would it call into question questions of 
how you can feel when it comes to dignity about your life. Like if you're a poor shopkeeper, you're, you might have a certain dignity in your family that you wouldn't feel if you had Bill Gates breathing down your neck all the time. It, it is extremely interesting. And of course, we, we don't have any information about that yeah. from the poor themselves. Modern historians tend to be a bit romantic about it. I think, oh, how nice. We haven't got these social divisions in the ancient city. But I kind of think it's a bit like living with Bill Gates breathing down your neck. In some ways, it's quite nice if you're poor not to be under the watchful eye of the rich the whole time. How do you form what your angle is versus what other historians think? If you don't have that romantic view... I think you just think, you know? I think you just say... Particularly when you come across, as you do in in all sorts of history writing, not just ancient history writing, when you come across standard views, then you just say, hang on a minute, is there another way of seeing this? If I am, you know, I don't know, if I'm an innovative historian, it's partly because I'm a bit bloody-minded and I'm, and, and I always try to say, can we see that in a different way? What happens if we turn that image on its head. You can do that in almost any bit of history you like. Were the servants living downstairs in an English country house, happily looked after by their paternalistic master? Well, some of them were, and some of them were spitting in the soup, weren't they? You know, it doesn't... um, (laughs) I mean, it's a question of being, I think, sceptical and cynical and constantly saying, is there another way to see this? Is there any way of getting at any kind of truth when you're looking at ancient Rome? Where you would say, Katie, I definitely, definitively know that this is how XYZ went. No question about it. Um, Beyond maybe that Cicero was killed at such and such a time. Um, I think you can say that some things are very, very unlikely and implausible. Rome, ancient Roman history is a is a wonderful playground for a historian um, because there is both a lot of evidence and much more evidence than people think. And one of the things the book is trying to do is to say, look, modern Roman historians always moan about how little evidence there is. Actually, there's loads of evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so there's a framework, but there's plenty of room for disagreement, and that's what makes it fun. Can you ever say you're wrong? Yeah, you know. It's easier to say you're wrong than that you're right. You know, it's a world in which there's such a rich texture, if you put the evidence together, that you can build constructs which are constructs, you know, and you could, you can never be quite sure. But they're well evidenced, they're rich, they're plausible, and worth talking about. Is that what makes Rome a difficult place for an archaeologist to work in? Yeah, a difficult and exciting place. And every bit of evidence counts. I mean, the bottom line is, it seems to me there are some places in the world and some periods in the world where the history is, is largely fantasy. Prehistoric Britain, you know? There's a bit of evidence, but, but how you put it together, it's like having two pieces out of a jigsaw with 10,000. Yeah. You know? And what's nice about Rome is it's not like that. It's not that level of fantasy. We've got 
10,000 pieces, well, we've got 5,000 of them. It gives us a clearer picture. You know, you've got the edge bits, if you keep the jigsaw analogy. You can, you know, you've got the edges, you can begin to see what the picture is. Mm-hmm. Yet there's lots more to do. And, and every piece that you find and you, you fit in makes a difference. And there's just still so much to discover. When, when I was living in Rome, and this is probably still going on, I would imagine in Rome and will be going on for many, many more years, is that they're trying to extend the subway line. And every time they move an inch, an archaeological find is discovered and everything has to stop and be excavated and such, and then they can move a little bit more further. That line is never going to be finished, as far as I can tell. Well, it won't be finished in my lifetime, no. but, <laughs> but we'll learn an awful lot in the process. Yeah, but, and, then, and then you have Mussolini coming through and just being like, well, let's just pave this over and, and stuff like that. So it always feels like there's just more and more buried there, and we'll never yeah. finish uncovering it. Yeah, yeah. It's very exciting, and I think that people often say, what's the point of writing another history of Rome. You know, and that's not an unreasonable question. Um, well, one of the points is that there's more and more and more evidence coming up all the time. Some of it's trivial, some of it's exciting. Putting it together, you start to build up new pictures of what Rome was like. Yeah. You write that it looks like, from what you've investigated, is that Rome had a very ordinary beginning. Can you explain why it turned into an extraordinary place somehow over time from being just a peasant gathering? Or Yeah, that's, and that's the really big question. Rome starts out. It's hard to know when any city ever becomes a... When it starts, when it becomes a city. Yes, it says, <laughs> right, OK, right, we've now founded our city. You know, nobody ever says that, do they? But let's say the 8th, 9th or 8th century BC, but it's, but it's completely ordinary with nothing special about it at all. Now, the difficulty is that we don't have any contemporary literary evidence, really, until we get in surviving until the second century BC in any, in any quantity. So you've got Rome founded, let's say, in the 8th century BC, plenty of archaeology, but no literary evidence till the second century BC, when they start telling you all about their past, you know, and they know not much more about it than we do, actually. The question is, we know Rome becomes an extraordinary place. We know it starts off as a completely bog-standard, ordinary, very dull place. When does it change? Now, it changes somewhere in that period for which we have no literary evidence. Before I wrote this book, I'd never really been that interested in the arguments. It all seemed to be a kind of fairly nerdy archaeological question. Mm-hmm. I got much more interested in the arguments as I came to think, I've really got to cover this, I've got to make this interesting. I came to think that from what you could see of the archaeology, that up to the beginning of the 4th century BC, 400 years after Rome's foundation. It remained a bog-standard place. Nothing very special. At the end of the 4th century BC and the beginning of the 3rd, and there was no big literary evidence, but you were beginning to get written texts inscribed on stone, 
by the end of the 4th century, it was definitely something new. It was definitely looking like Rome. So something happened in the 4th century BC, which changed this crappy little place into something that was now the beginning at that stage of an Italian empire, but about to be a, an overseas empire. Christians who don't know what it is that happened. Mm. I became quite confident that you could pin it down time-wise. Mm -hmm. You could see that coming up into the 4th century BC, business as usual, ordinary, going out of the 4th century, they're looking like the Rome that we know. And you can't see what changes it. And it was the, really the most difficult bit of the book to write because I, I, I could see that was, what was, that was where it was, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on what it might be. I mean, the, uh, there are, see, various things. Was it because they had been defeated by a wandering band of Gauls in 396 and said, never again, or, you know, whatever? And there were two things that I, that I eventually came to see were important. One was, although this didn't help you pin any moment down, you could see that what Rome had going for it was increasingly large numbers of citizens. It wasn't, you know, people look at Rome and they say it must be more militaristic than its neighbours, it must be more committed to warfare, more efficient. No, it wasn't. You know, they were all militaristic and nasty. You know, nobody in the ancient world's nice, right? But what Rome clearly gets is invincible manpower. So it means it gets more and more citizens. In some way, the underlying key to this is that Rome is making new citizens more than anybody else ever made new citizens. And in the ancient world, making new citizens means making new soldiers. And making new soldiers means winning more battles because actually it's force of numbers that is the key. You know, it's not military hardware, it's not drones or that kind of thing that helps them win. It's just always having reserve forces. Rome, for reasons that, again, it's very hard to know why they did this, but Rome has a different view of what the consequences of conquest are from other cities. So you know, the standard pattern of ancient warfare is terribly boring and terribly low level. You know, you know, in the summer, you go out, you have a fight with a neighbouring city. If you win, you take some cash, you take their cows and you say, see you next year. Right? Mm -hmm. When the same thing happens and maybe they win that time. Now, in Rome's case, what they start to do is not just say that. They say, now you're going to be citizens of Rome. Now, why they had that idea, unlike anybody else, heaven only knows. Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily a nice idea. It sounds to us terribly liberal now, you know, expanding citizenship. I don't think that you know, when somebody comes along and says, now you're going to be a citizen of Rome, we think, oh, yippee. You know, <laughs> that's not you know, it's a fairly aggressive gesture. But it means that they extend their fighting force. At some level, that's the structural underpinning of it. They get more and more people so that although they can be defeated in battle and often were, they almost can't ever lose a war. They've always got more troops because they've got more citizens and more people to put on the ground. 
the trouble about that, and I think that's absolutely that that's the structural reason, I think. It doesn't explain why it happened in the fourth century or why they did it when the people didn't. You know, I think probably that's kind of an unanswerable question, but I pondered it for a very long time until eventually I thought I just you know, I can't see a good answer. And I, a friend of mine in Cambridge is a political theorist and I thought I've just got to talk to him. I mean, because you know, political theorists talk about this kind of stuff about you know why and and so I've been going on and on and on through this, and I got Jeff round him, and uh, you know he's a big smoker and drinker, and eventually after many cigarettes and and a lot of drink, he said, "Look, Mary, they might just have got lucky," <laughs> and I thought. Blimey, I didn't think political theorists were allowed to say that. <laughs> they said, look, in, you know, if you kind of construct this idea of expanding citizenship, what can tip the balance between that becoming really formative and taking off and not is a lucky run of three victories. Hmm. And so I thought, right, OK, I'm allowed to say they got lucky. Boy, there's so many other places I can go, and you need to go take a nap before your big show at Town Hall tonight. But I, uh, let me just ask you a couple more things, and then I'm going to leave the rest of it on the table, and hopefully we'll talk again someday, <laughs> because you know, you're taking on all of ancient Rome. We're never going to get there. But since everybody who ever goes to Rome is so familiar with the Forum, you talk about a series of black slabs that form a rectangle in the Forum <laughs> that were there during the end of the first century BC. And I just thought, Let's just talk about what the significance of the slabs were as a way of talking about ancient Rome. Well, I think I need to start by saying that I feel very ambivalent about the Forum because it's the heart of Roman political culture. Everybody wants to go there. This is where Cicero got up and spoke, and you go there and... It's terribly disappointing. Yeah. You know, there's lots of bits of Roman archaeology that are not disappointing. Like what? Like Pompeii. Right. Like the Roman port of Ostia. I think wonderful. But the Forum is just a lot of broken up bits of ruin. It's terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I'll, I'll just say the same. I've never paid to actually go down there. I will admit that. I have to say, I, you can see it perfectly well from the edge. You don't need to pay. And that's always a big disappointment, I think, about you know the very centre of Rome. That it's wonderful things to see there, but you just look at visitors coming, and you know they think the Forum, we're going to get the Forum. That's right. And then there's hardly a notice which tells you what anything is. But of course, actually, all ruins, if you look at them more carefully and you unpick them a bit, turn out to be fascinating. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not impressive, but they're fascinating, and. One of the the most extraordinary things, uh, which kind of revolutionised Roman history in the very beginning of the the twentieth century, is a few dark slabs set into the the pavement of the Forum at the end near the Capitoline Hill in such a way that you would probably have missed them. When the big excavations in the Forum were going on at around the turn of the late 19th, early 20th century. That was noticed, that there was some different coloured paving slabs. And people didn't really pay it very much attention. 
but they excavate they're terribly keen as people were in the early 20th century to get back to the origins of things so they wanted to see what you know what was the first phase of the roman forum like and, and to kind of go under the paving that was put up in first century bc it turned out that underneath these black slabs under what you know, someone like Cicero could never actually have seen, it was you know, buried under them, was a really early shrine. Some kind of religious shrine, probably dating to about the 5th century BC. So we're going back before my kind of era of when Rome changed, before the 4th century BC. And in the middle of all this shrine, it was a bit of a mess, there was one of the earliest Roman inscriptions that had ever been discovered. And so the dating, because we have so so little to compare it with, it's very hard to know what date it is, but let's say it's 6th or 5th century BC. There's black stuff on the Forum pavement, and underneath a shrine with a nasty, very crude bit of early Roman writing on it. And it was revolutionary. It was a revolutionary discovery because although this writing is still terribly hard to read and understand, early Roman writing is, well, it's not like reading, you know, you know, reading Latin as we see it is quite hard, but reading it as it was written in the 5th century BC, it's a bit like reading Chaucer when you can read English. But one word was terribly clear in it, which was reggae, which was part of the Latin word rex, for king. And at that point, when it was discovered, that was one of the most important discoveries ever in Rome, although it doesn't sound terribly much like Mm -hmm. it, because Roman myth was that in Rome's early history, it was governed by kings. Eventually the kings were overthrown and they had a broadly democratic, republican form of government, but the early history, Rome was governed by reggae's kings. And around the turn of the the 19th, 20th century, people were beginning to think, and I think I would have been one of these people back then, all this was a bit of a Roman myth, really. Mm -hmm. That none of this was true. This was all... Yeah, Rome's version of its own history, you know, don't really believe, don't take it literally. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, here was a really early inscription which mentioned a king. And that whole sense of scepticism was blown aside from this one word on this inscription that we can't really understand. Now, it was that's probably very important. It turned people to look much more carefully at how the Romans talked about their own early history. And it probably turned them to believe it too much, actually. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, just one word doesn't make anything. But it was probably the most important discovery of Roman history in the, at that period. But I think there's something more to it than that. In a way, something more interesting, which is that what it shows you is how conscious the later Romans were of their early past. Because for me, what's really interesting is not just that there's this very early shrine with the word for king, or this rather kind of impenetrable inscription. It's that whoever it was who was paving the forum in the first century BC 
was going to mark where that early shrine was by using different coloured stone to pave it. And it's, it's a kind of wonderful vignette of how interested later Romans were in preserving some traces of their earliest past. One of the kind of defining features of Rome is that just as we're interested in where they came from, so were they. And they are constantly trying to memorialise what happened in the very, very beginning of their history. And they do that in ways that are rather respectful, like in the forum where you put the black stones down and that indicates to you there's something underneath. We've buried it, but we're still recognising it. But you, can, you could have gone up to the nearby hill at that point and you would have discovered something that they said was the hut of Romulus himself. They believed that the founder of Rome, Romulus, had had this hut. And there it was on the Palatine Hill, all made out of little twigs, um, even though it was now kind of almost a thousand years old. And it was there you can see that Rome is also engaged in a tourist trade. People used to go and see the hut of Romulus himself, but also in inventing their own history. And so what's interesting about them is that they're preserving their own history. They are trying to discover their own history. And given half a chance, they'll invent it too. And that's one of the reasons, of course, it's so very difficult to get back to what really happened in early Rome. Because the Romans have been there first, and sometimes they're really helping you but other times it's all a bit of a fake so there's a kind of dialogue going on between you and the later romans and the earlier romans uh, and you know everybody's trying to discover what what early rome was really like that goes for the generation of cicero as much as it goes for us is there anything Having studied ancient Rome so much and obviously visited modern-day Rome quite a bit, you could point to us saying Rome in modern day is very similar to ancient Rome in this particular way. Traffic. <laughs> traffic. traffic. It's always traffic, you know. <laughs> I think if you go around those little, um, those back streets in, you know, what I would call the campus marshes. Um, now, you know, the old city of Rome, and you have cars parked on both sides of the road and you can't quite get by. Even if you've only got a little cinquecento, you can't go through and there's people pushing their horns. Now, they didn't have cars and they didn't have horns, but I think Romans in the ancient world behaved exactly like that you know they got carts and they were parked in the stupid places along different sides of the road and you know people were trying to pass you know two carts were trying to pass and they were knocking pedestrians over oh, there's traffic okay one more and then i'm gonna let you go take your nap and this is just because i was so interested in how just living in such an ancient city affected how i viewed my own life having spent your life studying something so far in the past, does it affect how you view your own life or your own time on Earth? Are you trying to write prolifically so you last like Cicero? Or like, <laughs> do you feel like, uh, I don't know, that life is more important or less important? Or anything I like think that? It's, that is very interesting. It's, there, is, there is something about perspective, I think. Cicero was so overconfident 
Uh, and yet I think even he would be surprised that he was still being read 2,000 years later. I mean, that would have been beyond his wildest dreams. Um, and occasionally I think he might have said, well, yes, I'm not surprised. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's... I think it is about a sense of time. And, you know, what Rome does is... is it collapses time because we're there still reading things that people wrote 2,000 years ago. But it also... It gives you a really big sense of the expanse of time. But I think what it also does is enables you to play with perspective. You know, people often want you to say, oh, look, you can learn from Rome, we can see parallels between ourselves. I think what it helps you to do is not see parallels, but it helps you kind of stand out from yourself and to say, so what will I look like in 2,000 years' time? Or what will we look like? You know, what will people say about us? You know, when we think about all the kind of things that make Rome seem both familiar and weird to us, mm-hmm. what will be the things that people will think are weird about us in 2,000 years' time? It's a big and unanswerable question, but it's always good to ask. We take our own prejudices so much for granted. Whereas if you can think, what is it going to be to look back at us what will people be writing essays about? What do you hope that historians 2,000 years from now discover about us and get right? Is that an un- impossible question? Get right. I mean, I more think, what do I think they're going to say? What on earth were they about? Uh, the thing that I, that I think, and this is quite, has a kind of Roman resonance. I mean, one of the things that the Romans didn't do was they didn't imprison people. Roman criminal punishment was pretty brutal. Largely, in most cases, it was on-the-street punishment. It was clip over the ear, but it was fine exile death. It wasn't imprisonment. And so it was a society where you didn't have people incarcerated. I feel absolutely confident that in 2,000 years' time, people will say, why was it that they chose to use imprisonment as a punishment even though they knew it was extremely expensive and that all it did was turn out more more criminals why did they do it it's when you get that dialogue with rome and when you kind of well any you could do this with any ancient culture but we just have to know a lot about rome and you start to think gosh there are all sorts of things that rome does or doesn't do that we take for granted and that it helps you problematize your own culture that's much more interesting than the usual question which is you know so what roman emperor do you think donald trump was most like well you think well none really you know or you know should the romans have invaded iraq you know well no and neither should we or whatever you know and that's always very boring and they don't get you very far but it's those questions of of kind of triangulation between your assumptions, what future assumptions might be, and what Roman assumptions are mm-hmm. that seem to me to be so extraordinary and so kind of, you know, useful, you know, useful. I mean, and, you know, in Europe now particularly, but also in the United States, I mean, I think looking at ideas of Roman citizenship and migration and things, it's good to remember that there are people who've done things differently. Yeah. 
Okay, well, we'll leave it there, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, um, but let me just say who you are one more time. Mary Beard, she's a professor of classics at Cambridge University. Her latest book is SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. This is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.